your treasure to bury is the series we're in. Started about a month, month and a half ago. Working through two parables that Jesus tells. One parable, he says, a man has, ten ta- he has, a man has these servants and he gives to one servant ten talents, which are coins. To another he gives five and to another he gives one. And he sends them, while he goes away, he sends them out to do what he's called them to do. And when he returns, one comes back and says, look, the 10 that you gave me, I've made 20. The one that has five, he says, the five that you gave me, I've made 10. And Jesus says to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. Now I will give you more. Welcome, enter into my joy. Enter into my presence, enter into my kingdom. But he turns to the one who has taken the one talent And he looks at him to account for, what has he done? And he says, listen, I know that you are a harsh master. I know that you reap where you've not sown. In other words, you you expect even where you haven't worked. And so I took this, took this coin that you gave me, and I buried it in the ground. Here it is. And he tells him, you're wicked. You know what I've called you to do. The point of it is that you know that it was mine, and I've called you to do what I've asked you to with it, that it's it's." My coin, it's my treasure, and I've given it to you to be useful for the kingdom. Jesus teaches his disciples, both in that parable and the parable of the minas, which is a different kind of coin, that what we have been given is not just now ours, but it's Christ's, that he has given it to us so that we might use it for the kingdom. We talked about our entire lives being that. We just make the case that if we're breathing today, that's because Jesus gave us breath. So this day belongs to him, and every day. And if he's given us a skill or a talent or a job, and we create an income from that, then, then he calls us to be good stewards of that and to, and to support the work of the ministry in the church through tithing and offering. That he has given us one another to love, and that that love for one another will, will grow in us a faithfulness towards Christ. And so he has said, listen, love one another by this The world will know that you're mine. And so we not only meet on Sundays, but it's too large of a group for us to really get to know and love one another. So then we gather in small groups to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to. Last week, we talked about not only being a part of a local body, a commitment to a local church, but then where we are and what we are enabled to do or gifted to do, how we are talented, we can use that for the service in the local church. Throughout this series, we've been saying, listen, we're going to talk only about what God has given us for the work of the kingdom. So in an example of money, we're talking about what is our relationship to that in the church, not what else does the Bible say about money? Because the Bible says tons of things about money. It says tons of things about time or your giftedness or your relationship to one another. We're just going to focus in this series on what's responsible to the, what, how do you use that through the local church? We just said, listen, 99% of us, our ministries will all be through the local church. Maybe 1% of us will go on to be a church planter of another church or a missionary to another land. But for almost all of us, that our ministry will be through the local church. So what does that look like for us? So today we're going to look at this idea of not your treasure to bury. What God has given us, what Jesus has given us to use for his kingdom, that we're, to, we're not to bury it in the ground or not let it, let it dead end into us but we're to invest it in the kingdom. Today, we're just going to look at the gospel. Again, someone loved us enough to share Jesus with us, whether that was as a kid or an adult or that was our family or a friend or however that went down. 
So then now it's our job not to let that just dead into us, but now we would take that very same gospel, the treasure that is the gospel, and that we would invest it for the growth and for the sake of the kingdom. So Luke 15 starts with verse 1. Will you guys read along with me in your Bibles? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, meaning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the context of this, the the context of this passage in Luke 15 is incredibly important. And so understand there's two groups of people. There's the Pharisees and the scribes, which are the religious elite. The Pharisees are, they're the rule keepers, for sure. They are the religious. Like when you think religious, you think that Pharisees is everything you think of. The scribes are the academics. They would be like in a modern day equivalent, like the Old Testament, a PhD in Old Testament. They're the incredibly educated, uh, highly educated ones, and then there's the highly religious. So the Pharisees and the scribes, almost that religious elite over here on one side. And then on the other, you have the tax collectors, and then it just says in sinners. Now, we can infer some things, and we can create a group of what that looks like, but for sure, tax collectors in this culture were loathed. They were Jewish people that worked for Rome by exacting taxes on other Jewish people And if Rome required $1, they took 10, and they pocketed the other nine. They were hated by their community. They ripped off their own people in the name of the government. They had Roman authority behind them, and so they could really do whatever they wanted. And so they ripped off their own people, so their own people hated them. I just finished my taxes last night. That has nothing to do with the message. I'm just grateful I just finished my taxes last night, and I'm just saying, all right? Thank you, Jesus, for TurboTax, right? So, yeah. The tax collectors and sinners. Now, who are the sinners? It often speaks like that when there are, are groups of people that are visibly sin, sinful. And what we mean by that would be like outward prostitutes and just folks that just, when they looked at the community, they knew they weren't living a life that honored God. For us, we have to fill in the blanks of what that means for us. Yes, as Christians, we should identify ourselves as sinful. Not as sinners, as people that are Followers of Jesus, we should see ourselves as those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, saints that still sin, if you will, but not defined by our sin. And so really, it's it's a challenge to the church today to identify ourselves with the religious rather than with the others. We have this tendency inside of this to either identify with the people who get it right or even more at risk with Jesus himself and miss what Jesus might be saying to us. Okay, fair enough? Consider that the sinners are the folks that you don't like to hang out with because of their lifestyle, whatever that looks like. Whatever it is that is about them that identifies them as not following God, that's them. So Jesus is sitting, and I want you to see his interaction. It says that the sinful people are drawn to him, but the religious are criticizing him. They're grumbling and saying to Jesus' disciples that he eats with sinful people, tax collectors and sinners. So being like Jesus, just kind of a starting point, another note for you. There's often an attitude in religious people about sinful people. That causes an us and them distinction. Notice the setting before we start. The religious are very unlike Jesus, and the sinful are drawn to Jesus. This is going to parallel, if you're in a community group right now, this is one of the conversations we're having about reaching lost people with the gospel. And lost people is a term that Jesus uses today. 
And so we'll just kind of stick with that for the day. Those who are not followers of Jesus, what we mean by that. And so what we see here is that the religious are put off by Jesus or his choices, and then sinful people are drawn to Jesus. So if you were just to do kind of a, a quick assessment of you and, and, and the people that you hang out with, whether that be the church folks that you know or the people that don't follow Jesus or whatever, would you, do you see yourself as drawing people to Jesus that don't know him, or do you see yourselves as pushing them away? I'll go a step further. When you speak about biblical things, when you share the gospel with somebody, when you say what God says is right or wrong, however that conversation might come out, if someone asks you if this kind of lifestyle is one that God uses and glorifies and approves of, or is it sinful, and you answer questions like that, particularly two non-Christian people, are non-Christians drawn to you through that, drawn to Jesus, more importantly, through that, or are they pushed away? Consider that as a starting point for us today as, as we look at this, at this chapter in Luke. Verse 3, it says, so he, meaning Jesus, told them this parable. Now, Jesus is going to tell a series of three parables all about the same thing. So remember, hold on to the context. Sinful people on one side, religious people on the other, Jesus in the middle. And that's probably a good image for us because the religious are not on the side of Jesus in this moment. And if we find ourselves in that camp, we need to find out how we can draw near to Jesus. And the sinful people are clearly not in the following Jesus camp. And yet, they're drawn to Jesus. And so we need to kind of see that dichotomy and see that, that tension between these two groups and that Jesus is not firmly in either one, but that he has something to give to either one. Or he has something to say to both, if you will. So he tells this series of three parables. Here's the first one. Verse four, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the other 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. So here's the first parable, or the beginning of the first parable. Which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and lost one, would not go look for it until it was found? Would not leave the 99 you have to go find the lost one? He's saying, listen, who of you would not do this? And understand, this is set in, a, in an agrarian setting where most people for a living either raised crops of something or some kind of food that they grew, or they had animals. Many of those animals provided things like sheep provided wool and all that, but for the most part, they had animals that they grew for food, right? And so this is in that setting. So this is your livelihood. This is really all about your life. If you raise sheep, this is you. That's your job. That's your income. That's your food. That's your future. If you had 100 of them, would you not leave the 99 that you had to go find the one you lost? Right? Would you not leave the kids that you have that are there with you in the mall to go find the child that ran off and got lost in the crowd? That's what he's saying. Who wouldn't leave the ones they had to go find the one that they didn't? Now, just uh, as a qualification, so another note, there's a few notes, kind of just want to build some, some background to this. Jesus calls people lost because they're separated from God and need help to find him. Like sheep, people wander off course and find themselves lost in life. People are not always aware that they're lost until a crisis occurs. I was thinking like a lost lamb encountering a wolf, right? Here's what, kind of if you pull this image apart a little bit, you have these, these, this, these hundred sheep 
And you can imagine one just kind of wandering off. And that sheep probably didn't even know it's lost until it encounters something in life. All of a sudden, there's a wolf. Look around, no shepherd, no other sheep. Vastly aware of being lost in this moment. And so Jesus calls people that don't know him, are not in a faith with God through him. He calls them lost. It's just sometimes people just don't know where they are and they need help finding Christ. Not that Jesus isn't always there, but they don't know their way to that. And so he uses a term, so lost people is not a put down. If you are here and you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, it's in no way a negative term. It's just trying to describe those who either follow Jesus or don't. And in this particular case, it talks about people who wander away, don't even realize they've wandered away, maybe, until it's too late, or until a crisis, if you will. Verse 5, and when the man has found it, meaning his lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Listen, he calls together his friends, his family, his neighbors, He gets everybody together and he celebrates that this one lost sheep has come home, right? He is so joyful. He can't wait. He grabs the sheep. He picks it up on his shoulder. He takes it back. He's thrilled that this lost sheep is home. Verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, so in my ministry life, I've, had, um, I've been the lead pastor of four different churches, two church starts and two restarts. So two churches existed already and we're going the wrong direction, we're dying, we're losing people or we're, we're just declining. We call those replants or restarts, right? Basically you have to take everybody's going this way and cast a vision through the gospel for going 180 degrees the other direction. Oftentimes in those churches, you'll find people that have been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive, and that can be a hard conversation, right? This becomes one of them. Normally in church plants, you're starting from the ground up. You're gathering a small group of people who have the same values, the same ministry goals, the same things in mind. One of them is reaching lost people. And so that's normally easier, right? It's easier to kind of develop your own culture before there's a lot of people in it and then build that culture as it grows. But in restarting churches, you walk into a church by definition whose culture is headed the wrong direction. This is one of those verses that needs to be said. And so as the church grows, as the church continues on down that road, and we're about four years old now, and over the last year, year and a half, we went from a church that was mobile in Los Al, which is in Orange County, to a church that has its own building, that has a seven day a week facility that's in Cerritos in LA County, that is Cerritos is a big city and Los Al is a small city. We do went through all these changes. As we settle in here, one of the things that we find is we can kind of cause a complacency. When you're setting up and tearing down every week, one of the, I, I get, it's, it's incredibly hard on volunteers. There's a lot of work that goes into that. One of the net benefits is that it reminds us to stay engaged in the church, to stay engaged in what it means to be a church. You lose all that and you walk in and the chairs are in the right place every week or thereabouts, and you come in and you, everything is done here, you can lose sight 
of what it takes to be a church. You can get comfortable. Just either whether it's comfort or it's a church that's been heading the wrong direction, just consider how this is heard. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now remember the crowd that Jesus is in. Half of them, or one group that we're told about, is the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite. The other is tax collectors and sinners. How might those two groups hear this sentence? How would the religious hear that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance? That's kind of then that setting in churches, when churches are kind of headed the wrong direction and saying, hey, listen, this is what Jesus says. You can have issues with me, but this is what Jesus says. But listen to how that person who's a tax collector or sinner, whatever that means, sitting there with Jesus, what would they hear? That God would so celebrate me coming to faith, repenting, turning, following Jesus, more than just the community who already exists. Now, now, bear in mind, there's no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance, right? And I think that's a key piece, right? If you're religious and if you just think, oh, you know, you're, especially in this context, the religious elite, they're the rule keepers. They're the academics, right? Do, they think they've got it all together. That's half the problem. As we then remember, oh yeah, we have sin too. Oh yeah, we need repentance too. Constantly, daily, all the time, right? Starting with me, for sure, all the time. Then we begin to have compassion on people and their need for Jesus. So hearing it in that context, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So a heart for lost people is the next note. We're to have the same heart as Jesus for lost people and turn the majority of our effort and attention outside these four walls. Jesus makes a much greater priority out of finding lost people than pleasing, sorry for the typo, than pleasing found ones. Inevitably, what we hear from the church is, well, what about caring for us? Take aim at Jesus, not me, right? Don't shoot the messenger. Or if you do, great, but still, More joy over one who repents than 99 who don't think they need any repentance. Seriously. If that doesn't shape our vision and our effort and our goals, yeah, I know, Pastor Jeff, I know, I get it. Jesus says that, but what about this, right? There is no buts. He either said it and he's right, or you think he's not right and you can talk to him about that, right? What about us? Just look at our calendar. Just look at the church calendar. Just look at your calendar. Look at my calendar. And I will just let you know. Look at our budget. Look at how things are focused. And I would just suggest to you, we spend more time caring for us anyways. It's not that we're not doing that. It's that we're not doing the other. And the other requires selflessness. It requires focus. Reaching lost people, evangelism, outreach, mission, whatever you want to call it, requires us to lay down our selfish desires and go be selfless. That's been an ongoing theme in this Not Your Treasure to Bury series. 
is it requires us to be selfless. It requires sacrifice. It requires us to give, whether that's time or finances or the gospel. That it may indeed be inconvenient when you come home from a long day and your neighbor's outside who doesn't know Jesus, and you know God's put that person on your heart, but you know there's no such thing as a short conversation with that neighbor. If you're not laughing, maybe you're that neighbor, but I, whatever, right? Like there's no such thing as a short conversation, but they need Jesus. You just kind of like, okay, do I just kind of head down, don't make eye contact, get through the door, go through the garage, whatever it is, right? But do I remember that in heaven erupts in worship when one person turns and follows Jesus? Verse 8, this is parable number 2. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds us, finds it? Again, just a normal woman who lost a coin. I don't mean it's normal for women to lose things. I'm not saying that. It's not a statement about your car keys, I promise, okay? What I'm saying is there's a normal guy who's going about his business. He has a hundred sheep, he loses one. There's a normal woman has 10 coins, can't find one. And the effort they put into finding this lost coin, this lost sheep, is noteworthy. Like she lights a lamp, she sweeps the entire house, goes through everything until she finds that lost coin. Right? And it's like, oh man, it's the last place I looked for it. There it was. Well, if, you, if it wasn't the last place you looked for it and you found it and then kept looking, that'd be weird, right? Anyhow, so... But the effort goes into finding that lost coin. And the point here, normal people engaging in reaching lost people is the entire point. And what person doesn't matter more than a sheep or a coin? That's the idea. It's normal people engaging in the mission that Jesus has given us with a heart to find a lost sheep or a lost coin, with a heart greater than that to find lost people to love lost people, to share the gospel with lost people. So that's the context. So what woman wouldn't do this? What man wouldn't do this? That's Jesus' question to the religious and to the sinful. Difference in kinds of lost people. Unlike sheep in the first parable, the coin in this parable does not know the condition it's in, right? I'm making an, a, just a stupid point. The coin doesn't know it's lost, right? The sheep figures out it's lost. The coin has no way to know it's lost, right? You with me? That's important to the story, believe it or not. Unlike the sheep in the first parable, the coin in this parable does not know the condition it's in. Often spiritually lost people don't know they're lost. We need to treat people differently according to their awareness of their, and I'm making up a word, lostness. I'm not sure that's a real word. But if somebody doesn't know they're lost, is not looking for Jesus, we should have a different approach than someone who knows they're lost and has found this through a moment of crisis and wants to find their way back. We should be able to handle those differently, yet with the same purpose. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I think we know there's probably no shepherd that goes out with 100 sheep, loses one, finds it, and then throws a party, right? 
Because if you did, you'd have to slaughter a sheep to feed everybody, and that would kind of defeat its purpose, right? It'd be a deficit neutral. No woman, like, loses a coin, finds it, and then throws a party. Again, a little costly, probably defeats the purpose. Jesus is clearly speaking about finding lost people. And he transitions each one of these from the, the parable. And, and just if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, or, if you're, or even if you are and you don't know what parable means, parable comes from two Greek words that means to throw in alongside. That's what it means, right? And, and it's the idea that there is an image or a story or something that is thrown in alongside of a teaching to help us to understand it. So a parable doesn't have to have every detail or everything perfectly drawn out. The idea is that it paints a picture for us alongside the teaching of Jesus that will help us to find our way in it. And in this case, it's the, it's, it's the understanding that God is more joyful over people reaching lost people and those lost people coming to faith than he is in just building the tightest knit community. Now bear in mind, the last two weeks have been building the community. So you can, you can do one without losing the other. But the emphasis of this community, if it grows in its faith, not grows in closeness, but if we grow in our faith, by definition, we will be reaching lost people. There is no way to grow in your faith without including that. There's no way that you will mature in your faith to look more like Jesus and miss completely that Jesus reached out to lost people, that he cared for people who were in need, that the church community is supposed to be a missional community, a community on a mission, Jesus' mission, right? And that all four authors, five accounts of the final words of Jesus, all of them, Luke writes Luke and Acts, in case that was a question, all of them give us an outward focus, an outward commission, right? The famous one, Matthew 28, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. So the emphasis there is not on discipleship of believers, but teaching people about Jesus and baptizing them, because the first thing that somebody does when they come to faith in Jesus is get baptized. So go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey what I've commanded you, and I'm with you. I'm with you as you go. All of them point us outward. Yes, the church is born out of faith in Christ, but it's not to be an inward community, but an outward community. So when he's found it, she calls together her friends. She rejoices. I tell you, there's joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. So celebrating new faith. This is something as a community we should be doing. God and the angels celebrate those who come to faith. The call to rejoice with God invites us to celebrate together as people come to faith. That will only happen if we join God in his pursuit of lost people. They will only come to faith here if we join in the mission that Jesus has given us to reach lost people. Make sense? Yes, somebody might wander in off the street and hear the gospel. Most likely, most people will join us here because of you more likely to attend a church because they've been invited by one of you or me and hear the gospel, hear the gospel from you, hear the gospel from me, whatever it might be. But then we have the opportunity to baptize people that come to faith, and it's always a joyful celebration. But do you celebrate it 
as a win for you. As a, as a thing like, hey, this is what we exist as a church to do and to be. The seeing people come to faith, that's why we're here. Do you celebrate that? And do you join into that? And do you want to see your loved ones here coming to faith, being baptized? So verse 11, here's parable number three. It says, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here's this story. And, and this is a famous parable, right? Some call it the prodigal son. Most in the last, de- or not most, some in the last decade have moved to calling this the prodigal God or the prodigal father because of the actual definition of prodigal meaning just generous, overwhelmingly generous. So they decided that it wasn't the son necessarily, but the dad. We'll get to that, right? But here's the third parable. This one normally stands alone. People talk about this all by itself. And if you say the prodigal son, it elicits all kinds of images of people who have wandered away and come back. And and really, that becomes the sum total of this parable. It's not even the point of this parable. This parable starts with a father who has two sons. Now, I'll tip you off to the end, right? Remember the people sitting around Jesus. Remember, there's the religious elite on one side and there's sinful people on the other. And the religious are critiquing Jesus for his love of sinful people, his being in community with people that are clearly ungodly. ungodly. But then there's those ungodly people, those people that don't follow Jesus, and they're drawn in by him. That's the context. Now, these two parables of something lost and found and heaven erupting in worship, they come together to make a point. And Jesus says, now let me tell you a third one. Here's this father who has two sons. And the one son, the younger son, he goes to his dad and he says, listen, will you give me my inheritance now? I want to go live now. And I want whatever it is you're going to, when you die, whatever you're going to give me, can I have it now? And then he takes it. I know, sounds crazy. I didn't write the parable. Again, take it up with Jesus. So he takes this, and he goes out, and he blows it. And he goes out, and he parties, and he does his thing, and he loses everything. It says he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, just understand, Jews are not big fans of pigs. Fair? Okay. Pork on their definitely do not do today list, okay? So here goes a young Jewish man off into this country and he, he blows all his money and then a famine hits. I love that just like it's one issue after another after another, right? So he rents himself out to someone to go work for him as a hired servant and his job is to go feed the pigs, okay? This is told to the religious elite Jews and the sinful Jews. They all heard that that the pig has something to eat and the younger brother does not. And the younger brother's job is to feed those pigs. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. That is by definition what it looks like when you hit rock bottom, right? Like the very, you're like, man, my dog eats better than I do, right? Like pigs that they, don't, they won't eat 
won't associate with, won't be around, they won't own, they're feeding them and wish they could swap places. When I hit rock bottom, most of you know my story. My rock bottom was in prison again, right? In and out, in and out, and back in, on my way, actually literally on my way back into prison in a county jail. Addicted, broken, a train wreck, right? Everything that could go wrong was just wrong, right? Inside, outside, you name it. For you, rock bottom might be something different. It might come at the end of a loss, the loss of a loved one or the loss of a relationship or the loss of something or the end of a business that goes tragically and just shakes everything in your life up. Rock bottom is something we understand and, and, and we either know about it or we've definitely been through it. It's come at the end of a marriage that crashes and burns and fails and it wrecks everything. And so we know what that looks like. That's where this younger son is. He's just at rock bottom. Whatever rock bottom is for you or was for you or will be for you, it's that. And you can hear that in his cry. I just wish that I could eat as good as the pigs I'm feeding eat. And that's loaded with cultural things that just make it worse and worse and worse. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he remembers backwards when he lived at home. It's one of those when the grass is always greener kind of ideas. When living at home, he's like, man, I could have so much more fun. If I just had, I just go live the way I want to live, right? And that was in different ways, ultimately, what I had said about my life. I just want to go live this way. I don't want to live by the rules here or the rules I've heard in the church, or the rules I heard from my parents. I just want to live this way, which resulted in me getting kicked out of the house and a lot of things that followed that. Well, then I didn't listen then, and so that resulted in a lot more problems. I didn't listen then, which resulted in lots of legal problems, which resulted in hitting that, that place where I would have rather been anywhere but where I was. That doesn't mean that when I got out the first time, the second time, the third time, or any other successive times until the final time, it didn't mean I changed. I just kept finding a lower rock bottom. Maybe some of you can identify with that. All of us somehow have that moment. He comes to himself, he says, okay, way better when I was at home. But I don't deserve to be a son anymore. I will go back and I will, I will apologize. I will repent. I will change. I will go back and just say, can I just be one of your servants? Because your servants eat good and I'm starving right now. I don't deserve to be your son. I would be grateful just to be your servant. Do you hear this again? Verse 18. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I love that line. There's, it's a common thread throughout Scripture. David, at the end of his epic failure with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and the infidelity with her and all this stuff as a prophet, literally, has to come to him and paint a picture for him of how bad he's been. His first words are, God, I've sinned against you. Like our sin is against God. Yes, sometimes it has interpersonal relations. It has those things where we impact other people. But really, our disobedience, first and foremost, is God. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Normal dad, right? Just a normal father. Most fathers that lose one of their sons to a lifestyle that takes them out of the family would love to have that son back, right? It's a normal dad. What's he doing on this day? He's looking for his lost son. He sees him a long way off. He doesn't see him because he's not looking. He sees him because he's looking. Remember, it's three parables to the same community about the same thing. Just like the man who lost his sheep and went and looked for it, and the woman who lost her coin went and looked for it, so the father who lost a son continues to be on the lookout for his son. When his son is ready to come back, his father doesn't wait, he goes running to him. That is an amazing image of the gospel. Right, that there's a God who loves us like that father, who desires us, who created us, who knows how we are to be. Like a father to a son knows what is best for them and, and desires what is best for them. God created us to be worshipers of his. Our sin is us choosing our way and saying we know better. So we're going to go our way, not yours, dad, not yours, father, not yours, God. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That we have all sinned, we have all looked at God and said, I know you created me and know better, but clearly I'm smarter than you in this moment and I'm going to go my own way. And so we find ourselves like this son, separated and in need. This sin has separated us from God. But God loved us so much that he brought Jesus to bridge this gap. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will be the very thing that will reunite us with God. That if we come to God with words like these, like, I've sinned against you. And I don't even deserve to be your child, but I would love to be your servant. In that humility and repentance, God, will you, will you bring me back in? It says that the father goes running to that son, and that is where God is with us. This whole conversation in Luke 15 is about a God who will go running for you if you just allow him. If you would just hand your life over to Jesus, they will, God will run to you, love you, welcome you. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, God is faithful. He'll come running. Whether we're followers of Jesus and we need to confess sin, or we've never committed to following Jesus and we need to come. But if we, we do that, if we are humble enough to just confess our sins before God, he loves us. He will come running, welcoming us to us. Listen to the rest of the passage. This is an image of what it looks like to come to faith. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring, put a ring on his right hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. 
and they began to celebrate. Now we get a human image of what Jesus has been portraying in heaven. We get a very physical and human image of the celebration of finding one that is lost. We get this image of God running, welcoming, covering us, loving us, providing for us, and throwing a feast because we've returned. That's the image Jesus paints of people who come to faith. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. So if, if this was just about sinful people in need of repentance, can we admit that the parable ended and, and we had everything we needed? Just like God celebrates in heaven and the angels rejoice in heaven in the first two parables, now the father has run to the son, thrown a party, feast, the best. Well, if that was all it was about, that would be an amazing story and that the religious elite could listen and learn and those who are sinful sitting there, they could feel welcomed in and we could button this up and it'd be a shorter passage. Here's what he says. Here's what Jesus says. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So again, if this was just about reaching lost people, then the peril would be over. But this isn't, because you got to remember, right, there's the religious elite and there's the sinful. And so all of this has really been aimed at the religious elite, and we know that because of the second son. It's been in the context of both, both, in the, both sitting there in the crowd, and they're really representative by the two sons. There's this one who's, who's really gone and lived a life that is contrary, and they know it. They're there. They're tax collectors and sinners. They know when I hit my, my butt, when I was in prison, when I was that person, you didn't have to tell me I was sinful. I knew that. You didn't have to convince me that I had done wrong things. I knew that. Sometimes we have to spend more time convincing religious people that they're sinful than we do sinners. So here's the older brother. It says, now his older son was in the field. Verse 25, and he has come and came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. Here's the brother, the party thrown for the brother. Verse 26, and he called one of his servants, and he asked what these things meant, and he received him back. Uh, he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back, meaning your younger brother, safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in, and his father came out and entreated him or encouraged him to come in. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be able to celebrate my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Remember the audience. Remember the people listening. I've never disobeyed you. Who does that sound like? That's the people Jesus is aiming this at, right? Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, was your, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Because I left home at an early age, I grew up with another family. And there was four of us about the same age. Uh, two of them I call my brothers. They're not biological brothers, but I grew up with this family. The parents there raised me. And the one is my best friend. And... Uh, about six years ago, my best friend took his own life. He committed suicide. He was a leader at uh, one of my former churches when I was at Oasis. I moved on down here. He stayed there. He was a leader in the church. All our lives, he wrestled with some deep pain. 
Uh, all of us had to wrestle through the things that we had done to others and the things that had been done to us. We just had to reconcile our past with living today. And all four, at one point or another, came to faith. But he never got over this hurdle of depression. Of the past. Depression, I think, is an understatement. Just this deep thing that drove him. And one night, he took his own life. I lost my best friend. A year and a half later, my brother did the same thing. The one that is just older than me. Different way, but he drank himself to death. He would drink until he passed out every night because of the pain. Until this night where he passed out on his back and drowned in his own vomit. Two of us have figured out how God can reshape us to live today and get through the day. And live through the day and be joyful in the day. And really find that redemption and healing. Two couldn't do it. What wouldn't I give to get Brian or Rob back? What wouldn't I give? Not what would I give. I would give everything. My wife would give everything. We all grew up together. Kenny, my brother, still alive, would give everything. I promise you, everything we have. That's what you need to hear in this story. He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost, now he's found. Having a heart like Jesus. Next slide, please. The key to moving churches towards being on mission with Jesus is to reach, being on mission with Jesus to reach the lost is to adopt Jesus' love for them. When we who follow Jesus fall in love with lost people, the search and love for them unites us and makes us stronger. If we see lost people through the lens of the folks I have lost, through the people that I long for and miss, for the people that I would give everything to have them back, and it is not just cliche to say I'd give anything for another day. I wish I could have finished that last conversation with Brian where I yelled at him on the phone. I wish I could just have another one after that. I'd probably yell at him that time too, but I'd love to have a different conversation and be the last one. Wish you just talked to Rob again. Wish you could have told them both, I love them. Something. That's the heart of God. That is the heart of God for lost people. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost, now he's found. Our heart for lost people needs to change. Our heart for those people that need Jesus needs to change. I'm just going to close with this. You can drop the last two slides. We don't have a skill set issue of reaching lost people. We don't have a Bible knowledge issue I know it's the first thing, we're like, hey, do you feel comfortable sharing your faith? Like, I don't know enough Bible or something. We don't have a skill set issue. We have a heart issue. Because when we fall in love with people, we will find a way to communicate what's on our hearts. We will find a way to love people. Jesus' final words in all five accounts that we have are sending us on that very mission. The gospel we've been given isn't given to us to bury inside of us, but that we would give it away for the sake of the kingdom. Let's pray.
Jesus, I know that I know there are people in here that show up and they smile every Sunday and they go home in deep pain. And I don't want to overlook them because they're found. But I also want to turn us, all of us, into people who love lost people so much that we will give anything to see them meet you. That we will take on that heart of the Father, the heart of our Father, you, God in heaven, that we will be like you. That we will remember that we were once lost. That we were once in need of the gospel and you found a way through someone else to give us the gospel. To share Jesus with us because someone loved us enough Help us to now love others. It doesn't have to be the stranger that we don't know and we try and superficially find a love for them, but the people all around us, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, the students that sit next to us in school, whatever it might be, God, would you begin to put those names on our heart? Help us to identify those people in our lives. I pray that you would draw us to them. Give us a love for them, a selflessness towards them. Jesus, as we prepare to take communion right now, we do this celebrating your broken body, your shed blood, that you put us first before yourself. That's the gospel. That is the symbol of communion. And that you have given us this to strengthen us and to send us back out on mission to send us back out with eyes that focus outward, not inward. We don't have skill set issues, though we can work on skill sets. We have heart problems. If we truly loved the lost, we would find a way. So help us fall in love with them. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Let us go and imitate you in the community we live in by loving others. Let it come from our hearts, Jesus, change our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.